Hello and welcome to the Chemistry at University podcast. This is a series aimed at sixth form students in the United Kingdom who are studying A-level chemistry and who want to gain an insight into studying chemistry at university. My name is Max Taylor and I'm a third year chemistry undergraduate at Durham University who studied chemistry, maths and physics at A-level. In this six episode podcast series, I'll be speaking to three Durham professors across inorganic, organic and physical chemistry who are active in both teaching and research. We'll be taking a look at what they teach at undergraduate level and I should then build on this by giving you a basic introduction to these concepts so you can get a feel for what you would learn in a university chemistry course. We shall then take a look at their research so that you can get an idea of where a career in chemistry could take you as well as what you can work on in the near future as an integrated master's student. Today's interview is with Professor Jonathan Steed who is a professor of inorganic chemistry at Durham University. In this first episode, we should be taking a look at the background to his illustrious career, followed by looking at the undergraduate level inorganic chemistry courses that he teaches. In the next episode, we'll then shift our focus to looking at his research and his role as an editor-in-chief of a scientific journal. Before we get started, I should mention that there is a PDF handout associated with each guest that we speak to. It can be found in the episode notes, and we strongly recommend that you listen to the podcast with this in front of you. Anyway, let's get on to the interview and meet Professor Steed. I'm here with Professor Jonathan Steed, who's a professor of inorganic chemistry at Durham University. He's the leader of Durham's Supramolecular Chemistry Research Group and also lectures the main second year inorganic chemistry course on transition metal chemistry. On top of this, he's also recently been appointed the Editor-in-Chief of the American Chemical Society's Crystal Growth and Design Journal, and has extensive experience both authoring and publishing research papers. I'll now let John introduce himself. What a great introduction. I could hardly say more myself. Yeah, I've been doing chemistry for well over 30 years now. Um, I have particular interest in the, in the communication and publishing of chemistry, and that's why this is a fun exercise for me to do. And so, yeah, I'm an author of books. I'm an editor of books. Um, I've written around 350 research papers. And I just like the idea of bringing science to uh, to, to the public's attention. I, I always say that uh, there's no point doing science if you don't tell somebody about what you've done. And so uh, in addition to my usual teaching roles and uh, my research roles, that, that communication aspect is very important to me as well. Thank you. So um, j- just building on that, I know that you've got a great biography on your research group web- website, which I'll link in the episode handout for anyone who's interested. But I was just wondering if you could maybe just briefly outline where your career's taken you, sort of from A-levels, which is where most of our listeners are now, up until your current position now as a professor of chemistry at Durham. Yes, it's sometimes difficult to plan your career. Um, I didn't do all that well at A-levels. I was busy with other things. I was trying to write computer games for the old ZX Spectrum, which none of your listeners will remember, um, and busy doing cycling and projects. I didn't realize you had to revise for A-levels. That that was an alien concept. So it was a bit of a shock. I missed my university place by a grade, but universities used to be desperate in those days, so they took me anyway. Um, And so I, I, I went to University College London back in prehistory, what was it, 1987 that I started there. Uh, and that was great. I, I love being an undergraduate. I did much better there. Uh, graduated with a first class honours from University College. I did my PhD there. Um, and the done thing uh, after PhDs, I graduated in what, 1993, was to go to the US and do a postdoc if you wanted to stay in research. So I spent a year at the University of Alabama. And, and you can imagine going from growing up as, a, uh, as your first years of an adult in, in London, which we, we thought we were the, the biggest sophisticates you could possibly have. In, weekends at Camden Market and thinking great thoughts and talking about 
anything pre pretentious that we possibly could. And then I was parachuted into Suscaloosa, Alabama, land of shotguns and pickup trucks and uh, <laughs> college, college football and whatnot. So that was a real change, but it was fun too. I really enjoyed living there. Um, we did great science, made it really antiquated facilities and uh, met some fun people, um, really international group. The group moved to Missouri, so I spent a, week, a year in the Midwest as well. Um, that was pretty fun too. Um, and then I started as electric at King's College London in 1995, um, spent eight years there, went up to Reader uh, and then joined Durham in 2004, where I've been professor since uh, 2007. Um, and along the way, the beauty of academia is, is that you kind of get to define your own path. So you get to follow your own interests um, and you get the credit or blame for whatever you do or don't achieve. And so uh, my research has changed several times in response to ideas we've had and, and, uh, and funding opportunities. And as I say, I've also become very interested in, in the publishing world as pertaining to science in particular, uh, not Agatha Christie novels, but uh, communicating facts. Uh, thank you. So um, we'll get into your research um, in a bit, because I'm sure everyone's really interested to hear about what is a very interesting field of research. Um, but we'll, we'll start with sort of what maybe our listeners uh, could expect in the more near future, uh, which is obviously, as I mentioned earlier, you um, lecture what I'd say was, is the main inorganic chemistry course in second year. It's a big 12 lecture course on um, transition metal chemistry. So just wondering if you could um, teach or tell me a bit about the course and sort of what sort of concepts you cover and what, what people can expect to get out of it. I love this course. If they'd let me do 24 lectures, I absolutely would. It's really fun. Um, so, I, and I, I know I'm biased, but but I, I really enjoy teaching this course. This is the main course about the chemistry of the transition metals. People may have touched upon it at A level. So we, we cover the colors of transition metal complexes, their magnetism, their reactivity. And, and really that then underpins much of at least the inorganic side of, of the modern chemical industry. Things like catalysis, for example, you know, how, how nylon's made. Um, where, where your magnetic tape comes from, magnetic tape, I'm trying my age now. Um, so in the in prehistory before CDs, you used to have these things called tapes with, uh, with chromium <laughs> in them and, uh, and that recorded music that you could listen to. But uh, anything where, uh, where a transition metal compound is involved, um, we, we basically start the process of understanding the, the, the chemistry, the reactivity and the properties of those transition metal compounds. And of course, because it's colorful and because it, it's got interesting properties, then it's fun for me to lecture. Um, I've met many of the characters that, that define this field, or at least uh, that they were they were senior people when I was a student. And so, uh, along the way, I tell a few anecdotes if I if I get the chance of uh, of some of the characters that are involved as well, and uh, and try and make it real. You know, so for example, uh, two of the Nobel prizes in the last twenty years have been on palladium chemistry, um, as in its role in, in cross coupling reactions, for example, in catalysis and carbon carbon bond formation. And my organic lecturer um, in 1988 predicted that that would be where Nobel Prizes would be won. He was absolutely right. And so it's interesting for the, for the class to think about where their Nobel Prize may come from. I bet you there'll be one through my class during my career that might come close. Let's see. I, I do remember the, um, yeah, as, as you say, you do teach all your students how to get one. Because I very clearly remember lecture one, you uh, saying, if you ever want a Nobel Prize, find a new way to make uh, CC bonds and... Uh, I guess exactly. that advice has stuck with me so <laughs> you clearly remembered it yeah well, well, well if you're the one then, then you owe me a beer <laughs> <laughs> i think uh we'll make that deal on the air right now so <laughs> all our like listeners can hear 
they'll have to think of a new way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No pressure there. No pressure there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so I will now just um, take a quick interjection, and um, I'm just going to tell our listeners sort of what they can um, expect from this course and, and how, it, how it links into what they will hopefully have learned so far in A-level. Okay, so taking a break from that really interesting interview, I'm now just going to go and cover some basic inorganic chemistry concepts that you'll cover in an undergraduate chemistry course. Now, you'll, um, you'll probably want your handout to hand here because we're going to go through some of the diagrams in it. So in your first year, you'll cover the concept of crystal field splitting in transition metal complexes. Now, you'll have learned at A-level how each energy level, or shell, will have D sublevels, which we call D orbitals. For example, the third energy level will have a 3D subshell. Now, for a gaseous free iron, so that is if we just had an Fe2 plus or Fe3 plus iron sitting alone in space, all five of these d orbitals have the same energy. So we say that they're degenerate, which is just the technical way of saying that they all have the same energy. A visual representation of this in the form of an energy level diagram is shown in figure one of your handout. Now, at A-level, you'll also cover the concept of ligands bonding to transition metal centres. Ligands are ions or molecules that have a lone pair of electrons that can form dative bonds to a metal centre. Remember that a dative bond is where both electrons in the bond come from the same atom. So in this case, both electrons come from the ligand. When you bond ligands to the metal centre via those dative bonds we just talked about, the energies of these orbitals are increased as the electrons on the ligands repel the electrons on the metal. So this means that the energy of all five of the d orbitals will increase. Now, there's a catch here. Because of these five d orbitals on the metal centre, they are not all the same shape. So, this means that the electrons on different ligands are repelled by different amounts depending on which d orbital they are in. Which means that each of the five d orbitals will have their energies changed by different amounts. So some have their energy increased more than others. Now you can see this really well on figure two in your handout, which is a case that applies to octahedral complexes. So if you think back at A-level, you, you've probably learned about VSEPR theory and the, di the different shapes and geometries that molecules can take. So in this case, we're referring to a molecule that has the octahedral geometry. So you can see how all five of the d orbitals have increased in energy from the state that you also saw in figure one when they're free gas phase ions. So remember I said you've got an Fe2 plus or Fe3 plus just, just sitting there in space with nothing interfering with it. However, you can see here that two of the d orbitals have actually had their energies increased more than the other three. So the key takeaway here and the main message you should get from this bit of the podcast is that when you bond ligands to a transition metal through these dative bonds, then the d orbitals are no longer equal in energy. They are no longer degenerate. Now, you might be wondering why this is interesting and why this is of relevance. Well, it's this difference in energy between these d orbitals that gives transition metal complexes their distinct colours. So you might have seen in some practicals, if you've had a chance to do some practicals, just how how colourful these complexes can be. And if you haven't had the chance to do it, then I, I'd encourage you to have a quick Google search of transition metal complexes. And the wonderful thing about these fields is just the, the vast number of colours you, you can find in these complexes.
So just having a quick look about how these color changes arise. Well, to move between these two sets of d orbitals, so the set that are lower in energy and the set that are higher in energy, electrons need to gain energy to move between them. And they do this by absorbing photons of light. Now, this is a concept you might be familiar with if you do A-level physics as well. If you don't, then you'll cover it in your first year at degree level anyway, so don't worry. But basically, when white light passes through a solution of the transition metal complexes, some of the energy from the light will be used to promote an electron from the lower energy d orbitals into the higher energy d orbitals. Now, the energy that is absorbed by the complex strongly depends on the gap between these two sets of orbitals. So uh, the complex will absorb light and then the light that comes out of the other side of the complex will then be missing some wavelengths of light. So for example, if a complex absorbs yellow light, then the light that comes out the other side of the solution will be missing yellow. Now this light that comes out the other side of the sample is the light that we're going to see with our eyes. So it's the colour that the sample is going to appear when we look at it. In this case, because the light is missing yellow, it will appear violet. Now, you might be wondering where I've pulled the colour violet out of, and rightfully so. Well, we figure this out using a colour wheel, which you can see in figure three of the handout. So if we look at the colour wheel, we'll see that the colour directly opposite yellow is violet. That is, it's complementary colour. A complementary colour in this context means exactly what we just saw. If you remove a colour from white light, the light will appear the complementary colour to that was removed. So if we flipped it around and we removed violet light from the white light, so that would be in a situation where the energy gap between the d orbitals was equivalent to that of violet light, then the solution would appear yellow instead. Okay, so now we've had a look why this phenomenon where the d orbitals end up having different energies is so interesting why it's so relevant. So later on in an undergraduate course you'll expand on this and start to see how changing the ligands that are bonded to the transition metal centre can actually change this energy gap between the split d orbitals. It's really interesting to see how for example bonding a water ligand to a transition metal centre instead of an ammonia ligand can actually really dramatically change the colour that you see on the complex. Now you can see a great example of this in your handout in figure 4 uh, which is an example with nickel complex. So you can see on the left we've got a hexa-aqua nickel 2 complex that is a solution that contains NiH2O62 plus and we can see it appears a light bluish green. Now we can see on the right we have a hexaamine nickel 2 complex. So that's a solution that contains NiNH3 62 plus ions. So you can see the only difference between these two solutions is that one contains water ligands and one contains ammonia ligands. You can see that the solution on the right appears a much darker blue, which suggests that the energy gap between the d orbitals is larger which you can see in the energy level diagram. So it absorbs photons of higher energy. So this is just a really good example of just how something simple like changing the ligand can actually really affect the color of a compound. That's all from today's Chemistry University podcast. 
The aim of today's show has been to give you a basic understanding of what inorganic chemistry at an undergraduate level entails and how this links in with your A-level course. In episode two, we shall hear the second part of my interview with Professor Steed, where we shall focus on his research and some of the fascinating areas that are currently being researched in chemistry. I would highly encourage you to listen to this episode, even if I might be a bit biased, as it really helps put what you are learning into a wider context. What you are learning today was discovered many decades ago, and so focusing on current research will help you show where chemistry is today and what you might be involved in if you choose to pursue it further. Finally, if you have any questions about today's episode or have any feedback, then my university email address is in the handout for this episode. There is also more information if you're interested in learning more about Professor Steed or any of the concepts that we've covered today. I hope to see you again in episode two, and I hope you have a good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. Thank you very much.